0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of the Sight Bites Podcast, Canyon of Contention, where we go in-depth on prominent archaeological landscapes. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by this season's featured co-host, Robert Weiner. For the topic of this episode, What is Chaco? Location, Features, and Chronology, we have the pleasure of having Rich Friedman with us as our guest this morning. Thank you so much for being on, Rich. It is a pleasure to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing great.
0: It's uh, another wonderful day.
2: Beautiful. Well, Rich, we're so happy to have you here with us and to talk about a place you and I both love so much, Chaco Canyon. So we were wondering if we could start off with you just introducing yourself a little bit and telling us What is your connection to Chaco Canyon, both professionally and personally? How did you get introduced to archeology span of that region? And what does it mean to you?
0: That's a a long question. Well, of course, my name's Rich Friedman. Oh, Chaco, my my first time to Chaco was in the, the mid 1980s. And I went there in a VW bus. So yeah, that gives you an idea how long ago it was. That was uh, with my sister and, and brother-in-law. They, they lived in, in Tohatchee, which is on the Navajo Reservation. And I, I went down for a visit, and we went out to Chaco. And to say I was impressed is you know kind of an under, understatement. And if, fast forward uh, about uh, four years, five years later, I ended up in Chaco, or not in Chaco, in Tohatchee myself, that just kind of uh, sealed the deal for me. We were, we were going to be in New Mexico for just a few years. I grew up in Colorado and ended up in, in tohatchee which there's uh, uh, cultural resources all, you know, all over the place. Uh, the Chaco, greater Chaco and world is that, that's right in it. We went out to, to Chaco again and, you know, I saw the exhibit there on the roads and I thought, oh, roads. I can find those because my, my background's actually in geology. So I started looking for roads, and I was finding roads and great houses in the Tohatchee area, and and uh, one thing led to another. I finally ended up meeting John Stein, and which you know he's he's pretty big in Chaco, and we're pretty big in in roads as well. And after a few years, we ended up working professionally together, and and uh, yeah, I've spent a lot more time in Chaco than I ever thought I would, but it is. It is truly a fascinating place, not only Chaco itself, but the greater Chacoan world. And, and to me, that's, that's really the most impressive part of, of Chaco, is this larger region that uh, everything moved in lockstep with Chaco. I mean, when one thing changes in Chaco, it's changing everywhere. Of course, it could be it's changing somewhere else, and the reflection is you see it in Chaco as well, but you've got this huge... Region And depending on who you talk to, you know, it's from, I don't know, 70 to 90,000 square miles. Uh, and uh, it's it's just this huge re- region where everybody's doing the same thing at the same time. It started off with the roads and, and around Tohatchee and just grew to where I, I actually got to work in Chaco a lot and uh, outside of Chaco too. So working inside and outside, inside the park itself, and then in the greater Chaco and region, Really gave me a, a different perspective on Chaco than had I just worked in one place or the other
1: excellent so did visiting Chaco during this experience that you just talked about was that your first introduction to archaeology or you, had you already been an undergraduate or, or gotten a couple degrees in anthropology prior to this experience like what what it, what inspired you to pursue a career in archaeology
0: oh yeah yeah that's that's a good one so gr- growing up I was always interested in archaeology I, I think the way Winston Hurst, who's an archaeologist in, in Landing, Utah, one of the top archaeologists in southeastern Utah, uh, it, the way he puts it, he, he he says, you know, archaeology, you don't you don't choose to go into archaeology; it just kind of does itself to you, and and that's kind of what happened with me. I, when I went to, to uh, college, uh, I was interested in archaeology, but at that time, which was you know the mid seventies, mid to late seventies. If you didn't get a, a job you know, as a, as a professor at a university or, or a college, then you didn't get paid very much. And, and I like to eat, so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do something different. And, and I ended up getting a degree in geology, I still really interested in archaeology. And after I got out of college, the, my first geology job was actually doing geothermal work, looking for geothermal resources in, in Nevada and we're doing what's called geothermal gradient holes. So I I was uh, out there permitting site locations, getting site locations permitted, and uh, one thing led to another again, and, and pretty soon the company I was working for realized I knew the archaeology probably as well as the, the archaeologists that were going out there, and, and for them the, the big thing was I could uh, go out and I could, Stake a hole where they wanted to do a, a put in a drill site and actually look you know look for for archaeology ahead of, ahead of putting the stake in the ground and marking where we were going to drill and also figure out if there was a, a clear access to that location. So I was doing pre clearance clearance work so that when when we did hire the archaeologist to come in and and do the clearance work, they didn't find anything. So I, that was my first I guess you could call that professional archaeology. But, uh, yeah, it's just always been, uh, I say, an interest. Some people would call it an obsession of, of mine. And so when, when I moved to New Mexico, it was so readily accessible that uh, I ended up doing archaeology. A lot of it was because I ended up in, in GIS, Geographic Information Systems. So I had, had the, uh, the capability and, and access to resources with GIS which this was early on in GIS when not many people had it, I could use that in archaeology and do things that you know, especially when you're working with a, a big region or big sites like you've got with Chaco these these huge buildings or, or this large region. The GIS just works so much better than prior to that. We were all everything was done in the in the analog world and on paper maps. So it it really gave us the chance. Us meaning. John Stein and Taft Blackhorse and I a chance to, to do things that hadn't been done before in ways that hadn't been done before. And so one thing led to another and and yeah, I don't I don't have a degree in, in archaeology, it's in geology. And I do use those skills a lot in archaeology though. That that helps a lot understanding what should be natural and, and what is cultural. So yeah, that's how I ended up in archaeology.
1: And I think that's a testament to the Interdisciplinary nature of archaeology, right? That you back back in the day, not not so long ago, that megafauna were roaming around New Mexico, but maybe back in <laughs> right. in, in in the days of uh, the seventies, that you are able to use your experience as a geologist to provide different frameworks and methods for expanding archaeological knowledge, and that's just you know fascinating and, and a testament to some of these early endeavors that were that were pursued.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely. An interdisciplinary science where the more people you've got with with varied skill sets, quite often uh, the better you can do with any sort of project in archaeology because it, it does take those different skill sets.
2: One of the things that has been so awesome working with Rich over the years is that he was way ahead of the curve with a lot of the digital technologies that today are taken for granted. So as, as he was mentioning earlier, I mean, using GIS, can we say before it was cool and... I mean, Rich, you know, pioneered a, a LIDAR study of, of Chaco back in 2010, way before it was, you know, all over National Geographic. And maybe you guys were even using it before that. I don't know. So with these digital technologies, what has been the benefit of bringing them to archaeology? What, what was it like at that time when these weren't common technologies? What was the real benefit of bringing GIS and, and more digital methods to the field of, of Chaco and archaeology?
0: One of the biggest benefits was to be able to combine new work with old old work, primarily you know maps but but also taking tabular or textual data and and transposing that into databases within the g i s so that you could begin to look at uh, associations and and see the big picture so prior to that, everything in the analog world you might you might have some aerial photos that, that say. 1 to 40,000 scale, some at uh, 1 to 20, and, and some at 1 to 8, and the, none of them were at the same scale. So working on those uh, aerial photos at the same time was really difficult, where with the GIS, we were able to to uh, scan them and then georeference them, and then have them all in the same spatial framework, and you could begin to, to work through the, the different years of aerial photos to look for roads for for instance so you know, it really made it much easier to to pick up on things that maybe otherwise were a bit too subtle plus you know once it's in the digital environment you can enhance the the photos so you can make them lighter darker you can you can do histogram stretches on them you can do all sorts of fun things that that then begin to show you what you hadn't seen before and it was in in 1994 I was able to, to participate with uh, NASA and the, the Getty Conservation Institute on a pilot program or a pilot project in Chaco Canyon showing the, the value of these new digital technologies for cultural resource documentation and management. So we were, we were able to get some uh, airborne multispectral data of Chaco, which had data that of that resolution at that time was, was pretty rare. It was uh, Three meter and yeah, three meter data was was what it was flown in a, a Learjet. But you know, for '94, that was huge. Uh, you, you just didn't find multispectral data anything under ten meter or thirty meter resolution at that time. So three meter resolution was was pretty amazing, and that allowed us to work with the multispectral data and kind of uh, figure out what was going on. With that. would it would it work or would it not work? So that was a huge plus. And so working on it early, it was just, it gave us a chance to to see how digital technologies would help. And, and they really, they allow you to put together a big picture from pieces here and there.
2: Let's talk a little more about that big picture. So tell us a little bit about, you know, we've we've heard now about Chaco and a, and a little bit of its location in your previous work, but let's Let's hear about what is Chaco and where is it located? And tell us a little bit of background about this site you've worked on for so many years. And the, and as you've showed me, Chaco is not just the Canyon.
0: Yeah. What is Chaco? Chaco is a, uh, well, you know, that most people think of it as, as the Canyon, as the park, and it has a fairly narrow time span. So, uh, you know, what most people think is that narrow time span. When you when you begin to look at Chaco in, in this greater Chacoan region, you see things you see in Chaco. Uh, you know, you, you see the great houses, but you you see the roads as well, and you see that uh, the the roads begin actually a lot earlier than than what we think of as as the great houses. It looks like the roads are beginning somewhere around six hundred A.D. Give a give or take, you know. Fifty to hundred years, and they show up about the same time you see the first form of public architecture in the you know in this greater Chacoan region, which you see in Chaco too, which is the the great kiva or or you know in in Basketmaker three times that would be the great pit structure. So you've got this prototypical public architecture or a building or a structure that is is larger than what is expected for uh, normal domestic structure and then you've got roads going to that and and that just continues to develop through time and it's it kind of you see this scenario where things are are i don't like to use the word evolve because it it, that places a stigma on us that you know people are learning to do something and and they're they're improving it's not really an evolution it's more at a uh just a change through time there i think there are definite conscious choices you know we we're not we aren't gonna we aren't gonna live in this pit house anymore we're gonna build these structures behind it or we aren't gonna make just pit houses we're gonna make structures behind it and then well we're gonna make even bigger structures we aren't gonna do this waddle and daub thing anymore we're gonna we're gonna do masonry and this plays out through the entire region and it it looks very conscious in in the way it's done because if it wasn't a, a conscious cultural choice it would be you'd you'd see a definite lag of a of a significant period once you get to the outer reaches you know wherever it starts say say the one thing starts in Chaco going from wattle and daub to masonry then you'd see it in w- western arizona i mean eastern arizona what maybe 50 years later. So you'd see an obvious change there, a, a separation in time, and you don't see that obvious change. So it looks like throughout this entire region, there the people of Chaco, of this greater Chacoan world, are doing the same thing at the same time. And you see that with the pottery styles. You can tell where different pieces of pottery come from, but the styles typically are very similar. Uh, sometimes there's a slight stylistic change where elements are bolder or or narrower, finer work, but the general style is all the same. And it, it, again, that changes throughout the region at the same time. And, and if it was just people doing, you know, things on an evolutionary basis, then you'd see that evolve at different locations at different times instead of everybody throughout this entire region going, okay, uh, it's time to make chocolate Black on white. And everybody does it. So it Chaco itself is this is this larger system some sort of it's a cultural identity could be uh, different language groups different cultural background groups you know di- coming together to to create this thing that we look at as as Chaco as a whole and they're doing the same thing at the same time so they have a identity that's the same throughout this entire region and they're playing it out from at least late basket maker three, probably earlier than that, all the way through to uh the end of, of Pueblo III or the thirteen hundreds. So it's several hundred years of people doing the same thing over this whole region. And you see some ebbs and flows along the I typically call it the frontier where, you know, you're on the edge of this greater chocolate world and, and things will be a little less rigid in those areas but once you get more toward the interior you know 50 miles or so from that that furthest frontier everything's going to look pretty much exactly the same throughout the entire region
1: well excellent well we're going to take this time for me and rob to make a stylistic change to get ready for segment two we'll be right back with uh, rich friedman
2: welcome back to episode one of the Sight bites podcast we're here with rich friedman Rich, can you tell us a little bit about the environmental setting of Chaco and what it's like in the surrounding region?
0: Oh, yeah. Chaco is well, it's, its in the San Juan Basin. It's, it's very close to the structural center of the San Juan Basin. And it's also kind of in, uh, in the place you really wouldn't want to be to live. I mean, the Chaco itself is a pretty harsh environment. The, the temperature swings. I mean, in the in the summertime, it can easily get over a hundred degrees. Quite often, up in the mid to upper nineties for you know per- long periods of time. But uh, in the winters, it can it can drop down to below forty, below zero. So it has uh, uh, it's a challenging environment, definitely uh, as far as it, its climate goes, because it it's getting drainage off the continental divide uh, meaning the air the cold air kind of settles down in the valley or the canyon there and so you get a uh, huge and it's 40 degree temperature change changes in a day or are, are common so if it's if it's 60 during the day it's gonna it, it will drop below freezing at night which creates a difficult situation for for agriculture because uh, you have a very short Growing season, even though it, it seems like it should be longer, it, it's really very short because of these huge temperature fluctuations. The canyon gets. The soils there are, are pretty unfriendly to to uh, high agricultural production, uh, mainly because there's there's a lot of salts and a lot of clay in the soils. That's because of the geology of, of Chaco. It, it's sitting in in the Cretaceous sandstone and uh, shales. And those shales just, they create badlands. So the Bistai Badlands, you know, most of your your badlands you see around, which are, you know, they're just, they're huge, large expanses of shale exposure. So underneath the sandstone in Chaco Canyon is this shale that is not very good at growing things. And that's kind of true of the whole center of the basin where, it's not real good. Now, there are, are little microclimates where you can grow things, and you can grow grow things really well. And the side canyons, the little tributaries to the Chaco, are are typically areas where you can grow pretty well. You're getting water that isn't quite so high in salt doing better as, as far as salt and, and easier to control than the Chaco when the Chaco flow is controlling it would be really uh really difficult so the side canyons really they look like places where people could could live and then you get out on the periphery of the san juan basin so you're up against the chuskas to the to the west things look really good you, you actually have streams that are or were now now they're pretty dry but 30 years ago you had streams that were actually perennial you, they'd flow year-round coming out of the chuskas they didn't go far out into the valley they dry up but you did get uh, water for most of the year. Tohatchee, there, tohachi Wash. There's there's a stream there that flows most of the year. It might dry up just before the monsoon season hits in you know in, in July August, but uh, it it flows most of the year. And the same with the Captain Tom Wash up by Newcomb, Snosti Wash. So you've got these washes coming off the choose because are flowing year round, and Subsequently, you've got modern day agriculture that we're pretty sure was the same thing going on a thousand years ago. You had a lot of agriculture in those areas because there's just more water available and, and it's a better area to live. And the, the temperature is much different there. You don't get the big temperature swings along the Chuska Slope or, or down along the Lobo Mesa that you get in the canyon itself the the temperature swings are slightly lower you don't get as cold you don't get quite as hot it's just the environment is more suitable to living and growing agriculture there i first noticed the, these differences when i was i was living in, in Tohatchee on on the reservation on the navajo reservation i was working in gallup and gallup is very similar to chaco in its setting it gets cold air drainage off of the Continental Divide to the east, just like Chaco does. And it has virtually the same temperature every day and the same temperature swings. And when I was living in, in Tahatchee and commuting to Gallup to work, I saw this difference here where, you know, it'd be it'd be nice in Tahatchee. There might be some rain or light snow in Tahatchee. By the time I got to Gallup, there'd be, you know, six inches to a foot of snow. And it was just a totally different environment. And then I, when I lived there, I, I realized what was going on. It was just, it had these great, these huge temperature swings that changed what the environment was like. And in that valley that gallops in the Rio Parco Valley, you saw the same thing that you do, do in Chaco. There was not a lot of agricultural production in in that drainage itself, that main drainage, the little tributaries off of it. Yeah, you get, you get a lot of agricultural production. It's very similar in, in uh, environment there. And, and Chaco is just, when I think of Chaco, it's it's not the place I would think to go have a great civilization. It's a harsh environment. It's a difficult environment. And you go 40 miles away from Chaco in any direction, and you've got a, a much better environment to live in. So that's probably one of the big things is why did they even select Chaco to build the center of this greater cultural influence throughout the Four Corners area.
2: And there are no trees in Chaco. It's not just the lack of rainfall and the qualities of the soil. Tell us about the lack of trees and not only for heating, but for construction too.
0: Yeah, the trees in Chaco just, they don't exist. And again, that's for something, you know, a, a location in, in its geologic and environmental setting, no trees is, is what you would expect. Shale isn't isn't really good for growing big trees. Uh, most of the trees in Chaco grow up where it's sandy or along the cliffs or on top of the the mesas there. And you don't get ponderosa pine, which you see a lot of ponderosa pine in in the buildings, or larger pinion pine that that doesn't exist. You get uh, junipers, you know, some some pinion, but a lot of juniper and Nothing down in the valley. So the, the construction timbers, uh, for a long time, there's a, a big debate that there might be some remnant Pleistocene forest in Chaco, which looking at it, you know, with my, my geologist eyes, it's like, no, that that probably never happened. And more recently, it's been proven that, you know, that most of the timber in Chaco, like almost all of it, came from outside the canyon, at least 40 miles, some of it 60, 65 miles away. So they are hauling the, the timber for construction of Chaco into Chaco. And then with this lack of, of wood in Chaco, when you look at population estimates, you have to also look at the availability of fuel for priors for heating and cooking. And again, because most of the the available wood there that is there today is up on the mesas. You, you're going to have to be hiking up on top of the mesas to get new wood for everyday living. So, you know, if you, if you just say one, one tree per person per year for heating and cooking, which is, I think that's a, an ultra conservative estimate, 3000 people in the Canyon, you'd have to have 3000 trees a year. And Three thousand trees a year for over a hundred years is a lot of trees. Three hundred thousand trees. So, when you begin to look at that and look at the envi- the environment of Chaco itself, you see these big buildings. You begin to go well, and and very few fire hearts in the big buildings. At least to me, it becomes apparent that these these large buildings are not huge apartment complexes. They're huge uh, temples palaces there they're places where important people live because there there is some living going on there but not where everybody did so then we go back to playing the the game of you know monumental architecture and then we've got monumental architecture in an area that really isn't easily inhabitable which makes chaco even more interesting i think and and that's part of what Draws people to Chaco is this mystery of it's in this harsh environment, yet you have these this monumental architecture sitting in the middle of a harsh environment. So at that that's one of the big draws to Chaco, I think.
1: So you've touched on a couple uh, other subjects already, including uh, architecture and some of these features. Could you give us like a brief, you know, overview of the? Site construction of Chaco? What periods do we first see some settlement? Like, are people in here, you know, during Clovis? And we can see like continual occupation up till today. Basically, just through chronology, how do we see Chaco change over time?
0: Yeah, so the, the first, as far as I know, the first inhabitation in Chaco is, is during the archaic. We don't, we don't, haven't found any paleo sites in Chaco, although there are, are paleo sites. In the San Juan Basin. So, probably are there. There are archaic sites and they'd be mid to late archaic, six to 4,000 years BCE. So, we do get those. They're primarily cave sites. You go just north of Chaco, you, you get a lot of sites in sand dunes that are north of Chaco. So, yeah, there's we, we've got Bahada and uh, Pinto Basin. You, well, there is some Pinto Basin. So, we are getting into Paleo. I've seen Pinto Basin sites in, in Chaco. And then you really begin to see more sites, you know, more evidence of, of use of Chaco in late Basket Maker 2 into Basket Maker 3. So that's, and depending on who you talk to, Basket Maker 3 will be around, you know, 5 to 700 AD. It might be 350 to seven 750 it, it, changes depending on who's citing it but you, you can think generally five to seven hundred is is basket maker three and that's when uh the predominant domestic structure living site is is a f- pit house and normally it's a fairly shallow pit house but not as you get closer to the seven hundreds they tend to drop or get deeper so you get, do get some pretty deep pit houses post 600 AD. And then you go to uh, P1 or Pueblo 1, which is 7, 750-ish to 9, 950, depending on who you talk to. And during that time frame, you still have the, the pit structure, the pit house, only now it may be what we're calling in, in later times the kiva. It may still be a, a domestic structure. It looks like it probably is still a domestic structure. So people are still living in the pit house. But you've got a typically a row of rooms, a series of series of above-grade rooms behind that pit structure. And the construction of those rooms is usually a, a mud, adobe, uh, wood construction that's known as Daub, where... It's not really masonry stacked up. You've just got kind of like a a wood fence with adobe plastered on it and then a roof on top of that. So it's a a pretty rudimentary structure as you get mm, mid-P1 is when you start seeing more masonry elements. So you'll get single-course masonry walls where you've got just rocks stacked on top of each other and, and still kind of doing the waddle and daub thing. You'll have quite often wood posts in those walls to make them a little sturdier. By around oh, 825 to 850, you start seeing in Chaco itself, that's when when Pueblo Benito, the first official, what you recognize as being Pueblo Benito now, structure shows up there. And and that's the first multi story structure in Chaco Canyon. Well, Pueblo Benito, Una Vida, Penasco Blanco are, are believed to be the early structures. So, around before we're, we're out of this P1 period, we've got these structures that, that have single course masonry, sometimes double course, and are at one to two stories in height. So we've got multiple stories. Uh, then as you go on, you know, from, from 900 to, to 1100, 1150 is P2, or that's kind of the, the fluorescence of Chaco. That's the classic Chaco period that everybody thinks of. That's when, when the great houses get really big. So during that time is when you get all the massive construction in Chaco. And most of it's toward the end of that time. So in the 1000 to around 1115, 11, 1,120 11, is when you get all the massive building in Chaco. And uh, those are really big structures, really big walls. That, that typically, they're core veneer walls, which means you've, you've got this inner core in the wall that's kind of a rubble mortar mix. And then this nicely built veneer on the outside that makes the wall look really nice and is you know typically that's what we think of when we think of chaco is this core veneer masonry some of these walls you know at the base of the walls they can be three three and a half feet thick and they go up oh uh, the tallest one is, is around 40 feet so you've got these structures and they're just huge toward the end of, of the period early on you know in the 800s in in Benito, the the rooms are Around two meters tall, and by the time you get to the end of the building, the big construction stages in in Bonito, you're you're looking at rooms that are are a little bit under four meters tall, so about twelve feet. So we're they're getting really tall. Again, that's a, another thing that we're thinking. That's that's more a monumental type architecture. That's not something that that your average subsistence farmer is going to build a, a room that's 20 25 feet by 20 feet by 12 feet tall that's that's way beyond what your su- average subsistence farmer would ever need and so you've got hundreds of rooms that size in in Chaco so that's why we think you know this this period is when you're building all the all the big monumental architecture in Chaco then 11 to 1300 which is p3 or 1150 to Thirteen, you see a. Uh, you don't see the massive building in Chaco anymore. It, it pretty much dies off. There's still people there. Occupation is still pretty good. You just don't see these big construction stages in Chaco. The big construction at that during that time period happens throughout the larger region. You you get some really big structures. Chaco. It seems like the. The big construction there has stopped, but the use of Chaco hasn't stopped. So if we're using construction as a proxy for for, uh, habitation, then nobody's living there, but people are living there. It's just for some reason the big construction has stopped then, and and it's happening elsewhere throughout this region where we're getting buildings the same size as as Pueblo Bonito being built outside of Chaco.
1: Well, excellent. Thank you for that brief overview, uh, Rich. And with that, the chronology for this segment has ended. So we're going to move on to the next period of this podcast right after this.
2: Welcome back to episode one of the Sight Bites podcast. This is Rob Weiner. We are talking with Rich Friedman. Rich, we want to hear about some of your recent work in Chaco. Tell us about mapping Pueblo Benito and how that led to the model that people can see in the visitor center.
0: Oh, yeah. Mapping, mapping Pueblo Benito was, uh, well... It's something I've been doing for years. I have several different iterations of the map, but uh, the most recent one, the the park needed a a model for the the new museum exhibit which is a model of Pueblo Benito and they wanted it circa 1940 before threatening rock fell and, and took, you know, part of Benito out. It, it fell on top of, of part of Pueblo Benito. So they wanted, you know, to be able to show the the Walls, the way they look, the heights of the the walls in in ruin, not a, a reconstruction of the site, the way it looked when people were there, you know, before it started to fall down, but the way it looked in '41 as a, as a an excavated ruin. So uh, I went out with uh, well, a pair of I used two two different poles. One was a 16 foot pole, the other was a 23 foot pole, with uh, cameras mounted on this pole, and you used photogrammetry, which is the measurement of of things through photos. So I used a, a new structure from motion type of photogrammetry with uh, literally thousands of, of photos that I took with these cameras on these poles of Pueblo Benito to recreate uh, a model, a 3D model and a new map of Pueblo Benito. And that map had the elevations of the walls every six inches. So think of a, a contour elevation contour map only just on the walls so that the contractor who built the uh, model could create an accurate model of, of the way Pueblo Benito looked in 1941. And I used, you know, technology for that. You can think it's a, if you've ever been there or, or you look at some of the photos, it's a big site. It's about three acres. And I, I mapped that all by myself with the cameras and GPS. I use GPS to get accurate survey grade gps to get accurate positioning on everything and created 3d model to do that so yeah technology is that's the case of without using photogrammetry there's there's no way one person could have have mapped that i think i spent six days in the field doing that and one person could never have done that in six days a, a group of three people you know a survey crew couldn't do that in six days that would that would be months of work so technology is really a, it's a great thing and, and something that I think for archaeology, we're, we're only hitting the tip of the iceberg on, on what it's going to do for us.
2: Absolutely fantastic, Rich. Yeah, I, to everybody listening, if you haven't been to the visitor center at Chaco, I highly recommend checking out this model because it is awesome. I also want to say I love the image of you out there with the 16-foot pole and tourists walking through the site and say, what is this guy doing? Love it. So tell us a little bit about use of LIDAR. You were really ahead of the curve using that technology. So how have you used LIDAR in research on Chaco Canyon and Chaco and roads? And what has it taught you? What has it revealed?
0: Oh, yeah. LIDAR is, when it comes to roads, LIDAR is is really a extremely valuable tool or invaluable tool. I first used it in... Uh, oh gosh was it 2001 yeah 2001 was the first time i used lidar in chaco we got lidar flown of well the the real target was probo del arroyo and and alto were the two were two of the targets in piñasco blanco we wanted to see several things part of it was was erosion mapping and part of it was to to look at what we could do with the roads. That's why we did Pueblo Alto. And just like we expected, the roads showed up real clearly. and this, this is when LIDAR was still a pretty new technology. It had come out in the mid uh, 1990s, and getting real, real high resolution data was pretty tough, but the roads even even at that time with that data showed up real clearly. Uh, Then, you know, fast forward to 2007, got some more LIDAR, not of Chaco, but the greater Chaco region up near Farmington in the Farmington area. Aztec Ruins was a part of that big data acquisition. And we could see the the North Road going out of Aztec Ruins just clear as a bell, which it, it was one of those things that for years was kind of controversial because it didn't really show up super clear on any aerial photography, except for the 1930s aerial photography, which we didn't have access to until recently. And the LIDAR, it just showed that road up clear as a bell. And another road called the the Aztec Airport Road, which is a 20-meter-wide road going up toward the Aztec Airport that it's hard to see today. It was clear in 19. 19 but uh, the lidar makes it uh, you can you can measure the new profiles on it. so lidar is a huge huge thing with roads because they are these linear features that go across the landscape. Think of them kind of like a, a linear trough and you can use in, in the computer environment we can make the Sun come up and go down anywhere we want. So we can we can make the Sun come up say it uh, in the north, and just barely shed light on on your LiDAR image, your 3D image, and it will create this shadow enhancement of a linear feature running east-west. So LiDAR is really a good thing to use with roads because they're pretty subtle anyway. And when you can shadow enhance that linear expression or topographic expression on the surface of the Earth, it really helps identify where roads are.
2: Yeah, it's been, I know, incredibly helpful in the collaborations we've had together to use LIDAR and see new roads and, and to create a measurement of them, too. And as the fact that they're going away, we have a digital record of as they exist now, which is just a really great asset. Rich, I also want to ask you about the 3D modeling you've done of some of the Chaco and Great Houses, which, again, is unique, I would say, within Chaco research, Chaco studies. Why do you think it's important to see the buildings in three D?
0: I think what seeing the buildings in three D and and scaled buildings, accurate or as accurate as we can make them based on the archaeological record, it helps us understand number one, what what they look like. Number two, just how big they are. And number three, it gives us an experience that we can't have in the real world so the virtual world gives us this experience of what these buildings might have felt like at the time they were you know fully constructed and and what it might have felt like being there it's been an interest of mine because in my mind when i look at the buildings i i extrude them but conveying that to somebody else has always been difficult where if you you can put it into the 3d environment and make these virtual reconstructions then other people can see the same thing that you're seeing in your mind plus sometimes by going through this process of reconstructing them you see things that you didn't see before or or things look different than you thought they did so it, it really is a i think a real valuable exercise to go through to help understand not only what the building looked like but how it was constructed and and how it may have felt to be there at, at the time.
1: Excellent. Now for the close of this, to, to sum all, you know, this episode up, what do you hope your legacy is going to be in terms of Chacoan archeology archeology and research?
0: Oh, that's what do I hope my legacy will be? Well, I, I hope that, that people can see that I did contribute something to the, our greater understanding of what Chaco is and that, uh, Although, you know, I, I do often provide some interpretation of the data. I, I think it, what I want to be able to do is, is convey information to people so that they can make their own independent evaluation of Chaco and come up with their own conclusions. And, and if my legacy is, is just that I helped push the, the digital envelope on Chaco to understand and, and see Chaco better put all this data that, that is Chaco, because it is so big and it's so massive, not only the canyon itself, but this larger region into a context to where it can be dealt with and understood at this large scale. And and if, if my name is associated with that in any way, I think that would be a, an amazing legacy.
2: Well, I have no doubt your name will be associated with that and that for years to come, people will be looking at your models and work with LIDAR as revealing an unknown extent and an, I mean, both an unknown extent and an un, previously unknown degree of detail from the Chaco world. So, so thank you for all you do, Rich. Where do you see Chaco research going? What do you think are the big remaining questions and, and what sort of work do you see as important to the field moving forward?
0: Hmm, where is it going? Well, there yeah, there are a lot of questions. There are probably more questions than there are answers when it comes to Chaco. Uh, I think, you know, uh, we're, we're beginning to see more use of, of digital technologies, of, of GIS, of remote sensing, in under, helping to understand Chaco, helping to document. Uh, so I, I think that's one thing that we're going to see in the future, that uh, will probably help us understand Chaco much better is, is the use of, of technologies mainly because it's such a big area. I think the biggest questions still remaining and there's still questions is, uh, was, you know, how many people lived in Chaco kind of, how was it organized and, and who was there? And those are questions that in some cases I think are, are, are probably easy answers, uh, uh, as far as who is there i don't I don't know that that's an easy answer at all other than uh, I think all the the current indigenous peoples in in the four, greater four corners region were all participating in Chaco in some greater way and maybe at some point we can understand a little bit better how how that happened, how that participation with with all these different groups happened. I think Continued investigations into known oral histories is probably a, a real good thing because there is a, a really, really valuable record on Chaco itself in the oral histories. Of course, some of that isn't necessarily accessible to the average person because it's oral histories that only the Native Americans know. But there are still there are a lot of written histories that I think we can glean a lot of information from if we get past this idea of their uh you know like the office rumor where things change once we all begin to understand how how important the accuracy of these histories are to to native americans then i think we'll begin to to be able to understand the stories that they've told us
2: i think something else you've really helped me to understand as you covered extensively in this episode is that Chaco is not just the canyon, and for what I guess about a century now, a little over a century, we've had excavations in the canyon. Visitors, you know, visit the great houses in the National Park of of Chaco Culture <coughs> National Historical Park. But really, there's. 150, maybe 200 Chaco-related sites across this huge area, the size of Ohio, all across the four corners. And as you mentioned, that's all moving in in unison with one another. The pottery styles change together. The architecture changes together. And that is a big cultural system. That is a big deal. And so to add to your thoughts, I also see Chaco Research in the upcoming years beginning to look beyond just what's in the canyon and, and ask what, what are these outliers? How are they related to what's happening in the center? Is this a united sort of something like an empire civilization or, or are these people, you know, the other ideas people are emulating. So I think really beginning to see the, the bigger picture, see that Chaco is not just the canyon is going to be an important step moving forward and there's always new information as you said there's always new technologies so there's a lot to look forward to
0: oh yeah d- definitely yeah the, the greater world is chaco itself is is really cool but yeah that that greater world when you begin to look at the greater world it it makes chaco so much more than than what it is when you just look at chaco so yeah hopefully the the greater world world of chaco will will uh become a bigger focus i think i i was really lucky in that um i kind of my you know it, it's a chronology thing the chronology of archaeology in the southwest so i i got to work with a lot of a lot of the people who worked at the chaco center which was you know the at unm in albuquerque and so i've worked with what what they called at the time, you know, the Chaco insiders, the people who worked in the canyon. And I've worked with the Chaco outsiders, the people who worked outside the canyon. And I've worked both places. So I've been able to see this kind of this bigger Chacoan world. So, yeah, if we can improve the visibility of that greater Chacoan world and understand that better, I think uh, yeah, that that will be huge.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Rich. We've just interviewed Rich Friedman about background information on Chaco Canyon and its greater world. And he shared with us about his work utilizing emerging digital technologies. Thank you so much for listening to Sight Bites episode one of season one, and be sure to tune in next when we are joined by Dr. Kathy Cameron and we talk about the origins of Chaco. What would draw people to this harsh canyon to build on such a grandiose scale?